Hello and welcome to Legal Thinking with me, Ed Wooten, and my co-host, Liam Pape. Hi there. Um, this week, we are uh, following on from the release of our um, Emerging from the Storm report into um, the current state of social care um, following the pandemic and uh, um, other issues in the sector. Um, we are talking about crisis management in, in social care. Indeed. We speak about some of the biggest operational challenges that care providers might face when dealing with the crisis, how important leadership is, and also how to go about managing the media when a crisis occurs. Yep. Uh, and we have got guests today are um, Charlie Jones, um, who's a care and clinical director at BKR Care Consultancy, um, alongside Nathan Hollow, um, who's an associate director and head of health and social care and head of the Southwest at PLMR, um, a communications uh, company, um, and also um, Mei Ling Huang, who's um, a partner in our health and social care team. Um, so yeah, should we should we get it started, Liam? Yes, let's roll there. Okay, so um, welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Um, so today we're talking about crisis management uh, in social care. And I guess my first question, I'm going to throw this out to the group. So I'm going to see who, who comes back first, basically. When a crisis hits a care service, what are the immediate priorities for you know, starting to get it under control? And you know, what is the first thing you should do? Take a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> I think sometimes people you know, set off assuming that everything that they've just been told is wrong is wrong. Um, don't sit back and actually have a look and actually do we have some reasonable responses? Um, but I'd say just approach it like any other problem. Make a list, set priorities, agree them with other parties, but be realistic in your timeframes. There's an awful lot else that goes on in a care home than dealing with the crisis, for example. So it's no good saying we can do something in a week that actually with all the other stuff that goes on in a home isn't achievable. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Charlie. Um, any, any, any yeah, other I'll, I'll just say I'll, I agree with Charlie. I think normally people's first reaction is to panic and they get overwhelmed by their emotions, but they need to, basically you need to get through that panicky stage quite quickly so that you can deal with the situation rationally. And you have to remember that your staff are going to take their cue from you. So, you know, take that deep breath that Charlie mentioned, step back, think about what needs to be done. And I think we all feel emotional when we get waylaid by something, but the thing to remember is that emotions don't drive effective strategies. You've got to take a rational approach um, for managing a crisis, and that will also help give your staff more confidence. So process those. I often say to people, you know, go away and sleep on it or take the weekend, process your emotions first, and then try to think about what you're going to do in a rational manner. You've got to, you've got to get over that emotional hurdle first. Yeah. And I think part of that emotional hurdle is often, you know, that this this is so terrible. I'm just going to either throw the towel in or throw all of the resources in. And sometimes that can be overwhelming, not just for the manager of the service, but for the staff team. So actually being measured, taking that that weekend, you know, typical of um, regulators, isn't it, to send you terrible news on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, it's always example. a Friday. Yeah. But take that time, you know, and, and actually get some advice and then set what your immediate priorities are. So um, after taking a beat uh, and, and processing emotions, uh, May, you mentioned that you then need to kind of figure out a way of dealing with staff because they're going to follow from your lead. So what are the other things that leaders should focus on when trying to navigate a crisis? Well, yeah, I think you need to, there's, a, there's three things um, that, that kind of spring to mind. The first is, how you're going to approach things, having insight as opposed to being defensive about it. 
Second is creating a strategy. And then the third thing is thinking about communication. Um, so so f- the first one, think about how you look at things. I think there's a tension, a natural tension bet- between insight and defensiveness. So when, when you feel attacked, it's very natural to want to counterattack. But coming out swinging isn't usually that helpful in a crisis. We need to retain our or try to retain a sense of insight as opposed to allowing our natural instinct towards defensiveness from taking over. And I think to be an effective leader, you need to project an air of rationality and calm. And that's going to be helpful both with your staff, but also externally with the regulator and commissioners and families and, and, and that sort of thing. And and a lot of people confuse this. This I see all the time. A lot of people confuse taking an aggressive strength stance with strength. And they think that dealing aggressively with a regulator or say a local authority or commissioner will get them to back off. But actually acting in a, a measured and rational way is much more likely to diffuse the situation and kind of get you out the other side. And when people are angry, they usually just start going around in circles and everybody else starts to follow them. And, you know, as I, as I said, staff will take your lead. So if you are dealing with external people in a calm, measured, rational way, it will help your staff calm down and get on with improving the situation, which is generally the way out of a crisis. And then you've got to set the strategy. I won't say too much about this because, you know, I'll let Charlie and Nathan um, chime in. But... Generally, fighting aggressively with the powers that be is not a good strategy. Um, and but people who are too emotional, you know, sometimes don't recognize this. You've got to get a plan together that's persuasive to the people who are judging the service. And then once you um, have your strategy formulated and you, you need to execute it, you've got to get everybody pulling together in the same direction. And then you've also got to think about communication. And, and how you're going to deal with that and what you say as a leader in this kind of situation is really, really important. I'll, I'll, I'll let others come in because I have a lot to say, but we can sort of flesh it out more later. Yeah, I think Mailing's absolutely right. But one of my first things would be a, a list of things not to do and being resistive to those external views and, and just rejecting them because our internal audit is um, didn't find a problem is often um, a comment clients will make to us. Um, and also avoiding the temptation to pull your best manager from another service to, to come in and crisis manage this service. Um, we, we see that a lot. And actually, it, the inevitable happens that service was not planning on the manager's absence. Um, the plan wasn't in place. Um, and no matter how good the deputy is or, or whatever, they're, they're not the manager. And you, you then spread the, the issues in the organization. So I definitely have a couple of not, not to-dos as well as to-dos. Um, lesson sharing across the organization. We know this one's in crisis. We all focus on that one. And actually, we often have other services. And have we said to the managers, right, can you provide some reassurance and evidence that these aren't issues in yours? Because if there's a problem in one, they often now regulators will come out to all. Um, and we need to make sure that they're safe before we, we sort of diverge our attention. Um, asking for help. You know, the local authorities, CCGs, often have a duty to, to try and assist um, and w- are willing to provide resources uh, where a service has hit a crisis. You know, that can be some training. Um, we've certainly had free, you know, train the trainer training that's um, accelerated the improvements in services. Um, it might be clinical support. Um, we've had agency lists um, where we're given priority over other bookings because um, the, the service is in crisis. There's lots of assistance that they can often offer. Uh, offer. Um, I think it's important whilst we accept 
our failings that we also challenge what's not right. Otherwise, it becomes part of your regulatory history. And I think actually the role of a solicitor there, you know, often clients don't really understand if they've come to a care consultant, why they might also want some legal advice. But you don't want to damage a future argument that, that may be had. Um, and early advice at that point, I'm sure Mei Ling will, will agree, is often more yeah. cost effective than waiting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Get in there early, both with, with whatever advice you're taking, whether it's from a consultant or a PR advisor or from a lawyer. Get in there early because there, there are crises and then there's sort of troubleshooting. And often you can troubleshoot something smaller before it turns into a crisis. That's one. But also, I think, Charlie, you're absolutely right. Pick your points. You know, if there, if you do have some good points, then you can, then that that can start to de-escalate the situation when CQC or safeguarding find out that it's not quite as bad as they thought, mm-hmm. and then acknowledge the points that they have made that are valid, and together and, and work on those, and together that sort of starts to move you forward with a resolution. Absolutely, I, I think I'll touch on the communications point. Um, you know that's the area that we we work with clients on on specifically and i think f- from my side it's it's first identifying what really is a crisis because we work in a sector where things naturally will go wrong and um and therefore not everything that goes wrong is is a crisis uh it's worth considering you know what will what will be of interest to the media to the wider public i think in terms of communicating um i think there's there's often this false belief that you can over communicate um you know i i don't think i would ever be upset if my grand's care home uh phoned me or emailed me every day uh to give me an update on a situation that was developing and evolving but i certainly would be upset if i didn't hear from them for a week or two weeks um, when I knew something was happening there. Uh, I, I think in terms of broader advice, it's uh, something I find really helpful is when a client has kept a record of what they did uh, each day, and maybe they put that together at the end of the day um, of what they did to try and resolve the um, resolved whatever issue it was, because often we've been able to provide that to a journalist and um and kind of stop a, a negative media story from occurring because the journalist kind of looks at that and goes, well, you know, actually you've, you've, you've behaved in a pretty responsible way and done most of the things that that they could think of themselves. And so they've, they've decided to take the human approach and, and, and leave you be. Um, so sometimes that's just really helpful. It also helps with producing communications uh, to, to all your key stakeholders. And I'm sure um, for, for Charlie and Mailing on the kind of uh, legal and regulatory uh uh, engagement as well, and on the point about you know how aggressive to be in in defending yourself, I think there's a time and a place for aggression, but um, all too often it's worth remembering you have to actually work with exactly the same stakeholders uh, moving forward. You know you can't pick up your care home and move it to a different local authority area. So uh, at the end of the day, you still have to work with the same social workers, the same uh, director. Same, probably the same councillors will be re-elected, uh, and probably the same MP will be re-elected. So a lot of the people in your area will stay the same, um, and an aggressive approach might buy you some time, but it it doesn't buy you uh, goodwill over the long run. Um, so right, it's much yeah. more much better to be, uh, I would say, uh, conciliatory. Yeah, I think I think we've covered a, f- a kind of a few things in there. So I, I guess I'm going to kind of merge a couple of questions here in the next section which is um out of all of that what are the the biggest operational challenges when overcoming a crisis it sounds like different locations different management maybe one but you can correct me on that um but also 
within those challenges, how do you kind of manage them, overcome them perhaps before a crisis even happens? Like how, how do you become aware of them? Um, I guess, Charlie, I'll direct that to you first. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the first thing is really good communication. Many services that, that we've worked with have got into crisis. That When you speak with families, the biggest issue they've had or the biggest clue that something had changed was a decrease or a lack of communication. Um I've, I've certainly families that, that we meet with every two weeks at the moment and they don't ask anything significant, but they really feel involved in the, the process. And actually they've come to us with, here's some training that, that we've seen delivered in another setting that, that was really effective for my, my loved one. Um, they've come forward with ideas and activities and all sorts of information that's actually been really helpful to then go back to the authorities and say, hey, you were worried about this, but actually not only do we have a plan, but that plan's been led by the families. Um, and so they can't really dispute the plan either um and i think that the operational challenge is, is probably the managing of the finite resources that you have um, it can be really easy to send all of the resources that you've got to that failing service and take your eye off the ball with those wider ones you know be focused in the attention that you need get the right person in from the organization for the right part of the action plan and making sure we're not overwhelming the service. Because again, when we withdraw that support, what nobody puts into their plan is, okay, we delivered that for them. Now, what's the plan now that we're withdrawing it? And, you know, there's got to be a a balance there. Um, I think there's an awful lot of blame when a crisis happens. It's, It's trying to work out who was responsible for it being wrong, not actually working out, well, why did it go wrong? Why is we, an organisation, didn't we pick up that it was going wrong? Um, and then I think sometimes managers see it as their role and, and lots of providers that, you know, there's a crisis and I've got to be there, you know, 16 hours a day until it's resolved. But an exhausted manager is not going to perform at their best. They're not going to be able to take on some of the wider role. What's often missed in terms of leadership is that manager is providing the pastoral support to the families, to the residents and to the staff. And they've got a, you know, a finite amount of hours in the day. And who's emotionally supporting them? Because it can be quite embarrassing for, for the staff and for the manager to have a public failing, particularly when it comes from a regulatory report. Um, and a risk that, you know, that manager burns out through that process and you've delivered all of that training, guidance, support to, to get them where you needed them to be. And then they've left because at the end of the process, they've, they feel just a bit bruised and yeah. not supported. Yeah. And uh, yeah, work, workforce retention is definitely something that's come up in our, um, in our report recently. And is that, is that something you see, May, that makes these crises worse? The workforce thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, going back to what you were asking a a minute ago about um, what to do before the crisis hits, I think the main thing you need to do there is to build your political capital. And when I talk about political capital, what I mean is relationships. So the internal relationships and the external relationships. So you need you need to have your staff pull together. That's the difference. That's going to be the difference between making it or not. And so um, I think you need to make your people feel valued and you know, it will be building up the staff and v- building up the manager. So thinking about how you treat them, do you talk to them? If you talk to them, how do you talk to them? Do you listen to them? Do you give them responsibilities and chances to grow and learn? Do you incorporate their ideas into your ways of working? And, and what's your management style? Are you dictatorial or are you consultative? But I think if you 
invest in your people, they're much more likely to be there for you when things get tough. So every day you need to build that sense of belonging and that sense of loyalty to each other. But also that will help you in the situation that Charlie was talking about where, you know, a manager is just so bruised and so burnt out at the end that, that she just gives up. Um, so, so investing in the people ahead of time is, is quite key. And, and the same goes for external political capital, um, what Nathan was alluding to. So, you know, thinking about your relationships with commissioners, safeguarding CQC and other people like your banker, um, your insurance broker, the families of the people you support, if you have political capital with those people, they're more likely to give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, but if they don't know you or they don't like you, um, they're they're more likely to go for you, I think. So all of that sort of prep work and establishing the relationships is really important. Absolutely. I think managing a crisis starts the moment you start your business, really. From my perspective, um, as somebody who, who deals a lot with uh how organizations interact with the media and their local politicians. Um, so, you know, if the first time a newspaper's ever heard of your care service is because it's had a damning report from the CQC, they're automatically going to look on it less favorably than uh, a care home that, that might have been in the paper monthly or every other month for um, for delivering great care or having, you know, great quality of life experiences for their residents. Uh, so, so, engaging with your broader community uh, will buy you that goodwill that people see incidents as just that, an isolated incident, not the whole track record of your of your business. Um, and then in terms of planning more generally, it, it's, as Mailing touches on with the, with the political capital point, it's, it's about identifying who the people are you want or need to communicate with when something goes wrong, because it's it's all very well uh, deciding you need to send a letter out to your relatives, uh, but if you don't have an up-to-date contact list for them, uh, correct email addresses, or, or a process for who would uh, sort out and send a letter, uh, particularly if, say, the service couldn't do that itself, um, then then it doesn't matter what, what you're planning to say if you can't send it to them. Uh, and actually, that's something I come across far too often is, uh, is an inability to communicate quickly with some of the most important people because there aren't email addresses available or there aren't telephone numbers um, uh, mobile telephone numbers uh, for, for family members, or when it comes to politicians, that that uh, providers haven't considered who who they are in their local community, and you know that's something I can figure out quite quickly. But that's all planning that can be done in advance. Um, and I'd also say there's actually a lot of uh, incidents and crises in the sector are quite predictable. You know, you can predict. Uh, getting a negative CQC report without having one uh, yourself. Uh, so you could plan today what your response to that would be. How would you go about communicating that to your families, to your staff? How would you go about informing broader stakeholders? Um, what would your messaging be to people who are clinical versus non-clinical? Who would the spokespeople be? Who would be responsible for writing letters? Who would sign off uh, content if your chief exec was on holiday, for example? Um, you know, if the media rang up about it and they'll give you kind of a four or five hour deadline to respond, how would you handle that? What's what what the type of thing you would like to say? That's all content you can actually work on today because it's a relatively predictable uh, situation to be in. So Nathan, maybe to stay with you for a second, looking um, specifically at reputation management, uh, how can care business managers 
manage their reputation should they find themselves in the heart of a crisis? So uh, for me, I think it's about, uh, I, I take the mantra that most people in society will accept that things can and do go wrong. It's about how an organization responds to it and whether they are honest, accountable and transparent in the immediate aftermath. And that's where I come back to, you can't uh, you cannot over-communicate with families and, and uh, local stakeholders. They, they would far rather have an update that was, you know, a 30-second phone call to say nothing's changed, it's all okay, than to be sat at home wondering what's happening. Uh, I think a lot of the media crises that I deal with for care providers are born out of family members who were not treated or communicated with in the right way and they didn't feel that the care provider was taking their concerns seriously or that they were receiving enough of an update or information uh, and then they go you know they lash out they ring the media and the journalist starts knocking on your door or there's some content on social media and it suddenly becomes much more of a problem between um, with one family and becomes much more of a public issue. Um, but as I said, I think reputation really starts from day one and it's about building a really strong, positive, good reputation for yourself as a business, for your manager, for your, uh, for your individual homes, so that when something does go wrong, it, it is not the only record that people have. And uh, I think people will forgive uh, an isolated incident if they don't think it's part of a track record or, or something that's consistent to your organization. Yeah, and certainly, Nathan, that's, um, you know, if I was to, to give you my top seven tips to, to avoid um, or prepare for a crisis that might be in the future, it is that good relationship with family and friend, residents, you know, if and, and residents are often the forgotten part. We forget that there are people in our homes that, that do have capacity. And the number of times where I've seen meetings planned to, to inform the families and the staff of um, something that's going on, but the residents meeting hasn't been planned. Uh, but if you've got that good relationship, those people, even when something horrific has happened, will say, well, actually, you know, we believe in what you're telling us. You've been open and honest with us and, and we'll, we'll stick with you through this process. Um, you know, not mistaking compliance visits for supporting the manager. You know, what support has the manager had? And you get a list of, you know, head office audits that have taken place or people that have been in to check on the progress of the service, which isn't actually supporting the manager. Um, auditing the audits, you know, are they reflective of the current guidelines? What issues have we had that hasn't been picked up by those audits? Um, coming in with a fresh pair of eyes, listening to the niggles. And I think you, you touched on that, Nathan, that often people have tried to tell us there's a problem but we've not picked up that that's what they're doing. And then the, they feel that their only recourse is, is to make it more public. Um, and that might be the press, it might be Facebook, it, you know, Twitter, whatever it may be that, that people turn to nowadays. Um, but I think we also forget that by the time somebody actually complains, they're so fearful of, of the impact it might have on their loved one that they'll be treated in some different way or uh, negatively or people will be slower to to attend to them that if they've raised a complaint they really have tried to tell us before and we've missed it we've got to listen to that and sort it out um being honest and not falling for your own hype you know just because we say we're all these wonderful things doesn't mean that we magically do them and i think the final tip would be knowing what your alarm bells are you know you've got these audits you've got these processes but what what are we looking for in them? You know, in a nice new build designed for people with dementia in an old age category, 80 beds, I should 
expect, you know, six to eight falls. The number obviously varying depending on the, the specific client group. Um, at least a couple of safeguardings a month, a complaint every other month. And if I'm not getting what I expect from that home, if it's less, are they underreporting? What's going on? And if it's more, why are we having that peak? And just being ahead and then communicating that to our regulators rather than waiting for them to come in and hoping they don't find it. Can I just add that I, th- I think all of that's really insightful. The one thing that I would add is that um, it's just about the importance of empathy, you know, in, our, in the way we talk to people. And the more management I do at our firm and the more crisis management that I do with providers, I think the more I feel that empathy is important in terms of really sort of being, Charlie, Charlie, you did allude to it a minute ago, but being open-minded about what are you actually doing, but also just, um, you know, thinking about it from the other person's point of view and how are they feeling? And if you can get that, then you can often start to meet them in the middle and, and bring people together and diffuse the situation. Absolutely. I think people want to be treated as individuals and they want to be, they want to feel that they're heard. I think people will accept that maybe you might have a different, you know, a resident or a family member might have a different opinion to, to the, to the manager of the business or, but they want to feel that they were heard and understood uh, and listened to. And I think that's, that's crucial um, to kind of building, building long-term trust. Um, and ultimately, it's a people business, isn't it? It's it's uh, everything we do is looking after people, uh, and it's people looking after people. And so, it's it's a. I often sit down when I when I go to write a, a letter or, or a press statement. I think my my basis is what would I want to hear if it was my mum or if it was my gran? You know, what what would I want to hear and what would reassure me that this is a a provider that that is taking it seriously and doing the right thing and is not and is not trying to um, kind of be overly defensive or brush it under the carpet. Yeah, and that goes for CQC and safeguarding and commissioners as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's nothing worse than, you know, dealing with a complaint or a concern with, but it's our policy too. Actually explain why that policy exists and and actually does it have to apply? Is our policy wrong if it's causing that distress? You know, and, and showing that person actually come on the, the journey with us. Uh, we did a piece of work with Nathan's team a number of years ago now where, um, you know, very, very public failing of a home um, in a village where all of the, um, you know, events within the home were, were public knowledge in that village. And actually the biggest thing that, that we did was actually invite the community in to form what we called a community forum. And we presented you know, where we were with audits. We were careful, obviously, to, to, to not breach confidentiality, but actually gave the the community a sense that they understood what was going on on the day-to-day in the home until they were satisfied um, that, that things were better. And it was that community that was driving the press interest, that was driving some of that negative publicity. Um, and actually, the, re- the end result of that was the, the beds filled quicker in, in the home than than any of the local competition and usually with people like the commissioners um that had been part of the closure of that home so it was a really good piece of work okay um we're going to move on now to the uh, the cqc and that was um one thing that came up in our um discussion with the people for our report was um perhaps uh, going back to what May said about empathy, is that there's perhaps a lack of empathy from the CUC towards care providers and how they how they can work. And I just wondered, um, maybe going to you first, May, how you think the CQC should work with care providers when they're experiencing a crisis? Yeah, um, f- 
for a while now, it's felt like CQC are only focusing on risk, and the, and and they their view is that the paperwork and the systems used can mitigate that risk, and that's what they're looking at. So. Currently, if they hear something negative, so if there's a whistleblowing or a safeguarding or something, they go in really hard and fast and they carry out a rapid fire reaction. So they might send you letter, a letter of intent that demands information within 24 hours, and that can be followed up quite rapidly by a compliance action. And all of the focus seems to be on risk. And they obviously need to find out what's going on in a service, but I think that the aggressiveness with which they act sometimes can be actually destabilizing for a service in crisis. And I think that's particularly true now during these times of COVID. A lot of the people um, who work in these services are already on their knees and it can feel like CQC has forgotten about the external factors that have taken a toll on just about every service in the country. So that's not an excuse, obviously, for poor care, but it helps to explain why most providers um, maybe don't want to have shortcomings in their paperwork, but they're so stretched that it's very hard to be as perfect as CQC would like them to be, particularly when you haven't got enough staff. So they're not bad people. They're not bad services, but they have been hit pretty hard. So I think a more supportive approach, um, one that would maybe help services recover from the ravages of the pandemic, would be more helpful than a punitive reactive approach, the, the kind of approach that we've been seeing for a while. And I just add to that, they are changing the way that they're going to regulate going forward. And we don't have the full picture of that yet. But what I am somewhat heartened by is that CQC are saying that under their new incoming regime, they're going to put the emphasis back on the experience of people using services. And I think that that's something that has been lost over the past year or two with their heightened emphasis on risk during the pandemic. So I, I, I want to go back to that. I think we need to go back to that whole more holistic approach that we had previously with the mum test, et cetera. And I think they're, they've They've realized that as well, and and they're starting to communicate that now. Yeah. So, so to bring it back to Charlie's first point, do CQC need to maybe take a breath when, when they when they see a crisis in social care? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that, that's interesting is is there are inspectors that hadn't been out during the um, height of the pandemic. So, if I think back to how anxious you know myself and our team were going out in, into services in the early days of, of the pandemic. I think some of that anxiety is, is not being experienced by some of the regulators um, and they're coming in with that heightened sort of search for the risks at a point where our staff and, and residents have been become so accustomed that they're perhaps slipping a little bit in, in their monitoring of some of those risks, which isn't, as, as Mayling says, an excuse, but I think it's the reality of the fact that actually, you know, we, we've worn masks at work for, for the last, you know, two and a bit years now and staff, you know, we're hypervigilant coming in in the most ridiculous outfits in some cases um, to, to protect themselves from, from that perceived risk until they understood it more. And they've almost come to the other side. And I think, and, and Mayling touched on this, that CQC seemed to have forgotten that COVID ever happened or believed that it's over in, in care homes. And actually, we're still seeing um, staff absences through COVID. We're still seeing residents needing to be isolated in, in reasonable numbers in some areas. And, you know, this this constant conflict between what the government guidance was and what the local guidance was that wasn't so well publicised and what your, you know, HPA or PHE, as it was at the time, would allow you to do within a service that bred things like complaints. 
And I think my only hesitation about, and I think we absolutely need to go back to a, a regulator that that focuses on the experience that the people that live in the home um, gain. But I do th- think that there is a risk that sometimes CQC didn't look at whether that experience was realistic. You know, when you're talking to somebody who has a cognitive impairment or would rather be at home and doesn't necessarily understand the reasons that they're in a care setting, I think sometimes the the lived experience that's reported versus what the provider can evidence wasn't necessarily balanced by CQC. And there has to be a bit of balance in there. Um, and they'd, I'd like them to be a bit less vague. You know, you, you, you get this, you're not prioritising something. Well, what is it that we're not prioritising and what makes you say that? And actually when it's explored, it, it's not as CQC had perceived it to be. Um, and I think a lot of inspectors still come back with, we're not here to instruct you how to run the service. No, I know, but you're the one marking the test. So having an understanding of your expectation would be really helpful. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, we're coming up to um, time now. So I guess I'll just go with the the last big question for everyone and I'll, I'll pass this around the room. I'll probably go to Nathan first with this one because uh, we haven't heard from him in a bit. Um, but if as concisely as possible, <laughs> um, what is the one thing you think that care providers have learned or perhaps should have learned from the pandemic? So Nathan first on that one. Um. I, I'm going to adapt the question slightly and go, I think a lot of providers uh, communicated a lot during the pandemic because they had to, because their homes were either uh, in lockdown, people couldn't visit, um, so, so they had to um, do telephone or written updates to families on day-to-day life and kind of what they were doing and how they're keeping residents safe. And I think it's very, very difficult if you're a family member to go from receiving that type of regular communication to suddenly going back to receiving zero. So I would say that the thing they should they should have learned from the pandemic and should continue to do is to keep uh, keep up a program of regular communicating with families so that they feel uh, engaged and involved in what happens in the home, irrespective of whether they are able to attend physically or not. Um, I think probably that there's no such thing as a set plan. We have to be flexible. We've got to be quick to respond, continue to use the tech to support families to feel engaged in in their loved ones' lives and be grateful for the incredible people we employ to look after service users in what has been really difficult circumstances, often without complaint. And we'll go back to they're a staff group and that's kind of what we expect them to do. And actually a lot of what they do day to day is incredible. I I think that probably... I think that it would be great if people could 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 take some positivity out of the whole experience because I think that probably every provider and every manager can think of ways in which their service has improved during the course of the pandemic. So as Nathan was saying, you might have more efficient ways of communicating maybe electronically with staff or with relatives. Uh, You may be much better at infection control. I would hope you are. Um, You may have really come together as a team And the point is that the crisis is is a crucible and it forms you and it can improve you. And, you know, it's up to us to try to extract the lessons from the crisis and then build on them. And if you can do that, then I I like to think that all the pain and grief of the crisis may not have been a total waste of time um, and and totally debilitating. You know, what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of a thing. Um, And I think there's probably a lot of positivity to come out of that. And as we, you know, Charlie says, yes, we're still we're still suffering and and we are still suffering. But as as we 
come through um, and hopefully start to get to the other side. I think drawing the positive and the strength that we've gained out of it is, is a really important thing. Yes, a really interesting conversation there. Um, I think one of the things that stuck with me was how important kind of individual leadership and management style is when dealing with a crisis. Um, but there was absolutely loads of useful advice in there. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that stuck with me was, um, and it's probably something we're learning with the, the recent government um, reports that are coming out uh, are that you know being open and honest um, at an earlier stage um, and being more and communicating more about um, what issues have been faced can uh, in some ways alleviate the kind of PR damage I guess um, that might come out uh, of a crisis so yeah I thought that was really interesting Absolutely. I think it was pointed out in the podcast that people acknowledge that mistakes will happen and uh, it is a crisis-prone sector as a whole. Um, But where people get annoyed is when there's an attempt at a cover-up or there's an Mm. attempt um, to to kind of hide the problem uh, rather than deal with it head-on. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Um, And for more on this topic um, of the social care sector, make sure to check out our report uh, at rwkgoodman.com forward slash social care storm all one word um it's got some fantastic contributions from all sorts of leading thinkers in 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 the field of social care um and yeah um otherwise make sure to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get it um and give us a like or give us a review um you know whatever works for you give us a like (laughs) well they might be watching on youtube so um thanks for listening thanks for listening